Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 21st of November 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Derrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border, and Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. Um, okay, so uh, Rishi was in Kiev on Saturday. Uh, here he is, and uh, meeting the Klein, is that what we call him? I would say so. Yes, okay. Uh, and uh, well, they shook hands and Rishi announced that he was uh, deeply humbled to be in Kiev. Uh, and he said that the UK will stand by Ukrainians in their fight. Uh, this was obviously his first visit since becoming prime minister. Uh, and he confirmed that the UK will provide a major new package of air defense to keep Ukrainian civilians and critical national infrastructure from an intense barrage of Russian airstrikes uh, and 50 million pound package for that. Uh, 125 anti-aircraft guns, technology to counter Iranian-supplied drones, a thousand new anti-air missiles. I mean, this has all been announced 15 times before, but they keep announcing the same thing. Uh, and then, uh, of course, they're going to give 12 million pounds for the World Pro Food Programme's response uh, to uh, the, the cold winter that's coming, uh, 4 million pounds for the International Organization of Migration, and so on. So let's see what Rishi had to say. Here he is. Uh, it is deeply humbling to be in Kiev today and to have the opportunity to meet those who are doing so much and paying such a high price to defend the principles of sovereignty and democracy. Uh, but as I say, they recognize that the Ukrainians faced a very difficult, or they do face a very difficult uh, winter. Uh, and so uh, the Ministry of Defense is tweeting this out this morning because they're giving them all lighters, all the, all the Ukrainians that come to the UK for, uh, for uh, training. Uh, are getting lighters, Brian. I presume that's uh, part of the cold weather kit for uh, for this winter. Well, or is it to encourage them to smoke? And we've got a consistent no smoking policy throughout UK government and Western government. So is it to get them smoking more? Uh, but glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes. David, that's the message from uh, the Ministry of Defence. And what's missing in all of this wonderful rhetoric, Mike, is any talk of peace of a peace process, a ceasefire, an end to the violence. Uh, we were told by a French official that if uh, the Ukrainians recaptured Kherson, then that was enough and we could talk about peace then. Uh, but apparently that's no longer the case. Uh, in, indeed. Sorry. Sorry, can, can I just come in there? But one of my questions is, what indeed did Richie Sunak talk about? And uh, was he the man sent over a la Boris Johnson to make sure that uh, Zelensky did not get involved in any peace deals. Is that what Richie Sunak was, was there for? We've got no notes of meetings. We've got no briefings with the British public. So what exactly did Richie Sunak go to uh, Ukraine for? Uh, indeed, good question. But in the meantime, uh, no peace going to happen at the OSCE because uh, Poland has decided that Russia should not be allowed to attend the next, the upcoming OSCE meeting in Łódź. Uh, and uh, in a statement, the Polish OSCE chairmanship said delegations should be adjusted to the current EU regulations and not include persons that are sanctioned by the European Union following Russia's illegal aggression against Ukraine on February the 24th. A number of Russian nationalists were added. Nationals were added to the list of sanctioned individuals, including Minister Lavrov. So Lavrov not allowed to attend the, o the OSCE meeting. Uh, this was the response from the Russian foreign ministry. Uh, this violates the OSCE rules of procedure and decisions of its policy, policy making bodies and has caused irreparable damage to the authority of the entire organization. Uh, Poland, with the support of its associates, 
from the Western camp is pushing the OSCE into the abyss. Uh, so, David, uh, no prospect of uh, any negotiations or discussions uh, at another international get-together uh, where an opportunity may have come up to do exactly that? Indeed. I mean, how, how many opportunities do they need to throw away before it starts to look like they're not interested in peace at any price and at any time? Um, this is very worrying. The time, the time for negotiating is now. Right, the, the, there's not too much happening on the battlefield. Uh, there, the winter's approaching. It's going to be a horrible time for the Ukrainian people. Um, I, I'm just astounded that we're closing down uh, opportunities for discussion and not instead of opening them up, which is what we should be doing. If we are, if if the Western governments have the best interest of the Ukrainians at, at heart, they should be looking to end the war and end it as soon as possible. I totally agree with that, David. But of course, the aim is not to stop the war. The war's got to continue to the last Ukrainian because the ultimate objective, of course, is regime change in Russia. Uh, but let's have a look at what the BBC is doing. Very interesting article here. Ukraine war hope returns to Kyrgyzstan after the Russian forces leave. And from the image and the general style of the article, You'd believe that all was uh, wonderful, light and love in uh, Kherson now, and the people were simply back in their city. But of course, the BBC deceiving UK viewers and world viewers, because this is propaganda and a distortion of the reality. So BBC trying to give the impression people have just moved back into Kherson and the city's going to be revitalised and everybody's going to live happily ever, ever after. But of course, what the BBC doesn't want to report on is the truth about what uh, the Ukrainians themselves are saying uh, should be happening in Kyrgyzstan. So let's have a look at this article from uh, Ukrainska Pravda. And uh, this is really going to give us the reality. Here's the headline. Ukraine begins evacuation uh, from Kyrgyzstan and Mykolaiv oblasts. And if we have a look at uh, how this has been reported, except on the BBC, this is Arena uh, uh, Vereshut from the Ministry of Reintegration of the Temporary Occupied Territories. So we've got government ministers here. Let's have a look at what they say. Voluntary evacuation from the liberated territories in the south of Ukraine has already begun and the state is paying all costs and taking all responsibility associated with this process. This means that everyone can leave for safer regions if they wish, and the state will provide for their transportation, accommodation, medical care, etc. Our task is to reach everyone and offer them a chance to leave through Mykolaiv or Krivyaria and to go to the western oblasts of Ukraine. We have the funds for this. We have understanding and most importantly experience uh, because we've already done this in the Kharkov oblast and the Donetsk region. So very clear here what uh, the Ukrainians themselves are doing. Uh, they realise that they cannot simply reoccupy Kyrgyzstan and they're desperate to move people out. And let's reinforce the reporting because uh, we can also have a look at, at what uh, Yaroslav Yanushevich has said. He's uh, head of the Kyrgyzstan Oblast and State Administration. And he's calling on residents of the liberated territories in the region to evacuate uh, he says, due to the high risk of enemy attacks. Um, so this is a little bit more detail. 
he said to residents of the Kyrgyzstan and liberated settlements of the re region, there is still a high probability of enemy attacks on the right bank part of the Kyrgyzstan Oblast as the Russian army flees. It is beginning to fight with civilians out of desperation. We've seen this repeatedly in many liberated localities. So the lies in there that the Russians simply target civilians, um, but look at what he is saying. They want people out of that area. BBC simply doesn't report this. Uh, let's uh, just carry on a little bit. So he, he goes on here. Also, before they fled, these vile enemies caused serious damage to our critical infrastructure, which provides electricity, heat and water. Therefore, we strongly recommend evacuating to safer areas. The team at the Kyrgyzstan Oblast military, military Administration is ready to help you with this. So that's the reality of how the Ukrainians see it. But of course, the BBC wants to give a totally different impression to Western audiences. This is a little bit of their comment in the weeks since Russia pulled out of the southern city. Uh, visceral relief has been replaced with optimistic busyness. Uh, so an acoustic band is playing Western covers, queues of people snake around the city's main square. That's because they're being fed, of course, and there are tents where residents can get a hot drink or first aid. So the BBC would have us believe that Kearson is to be revitalized as a city, but this is a complete lie. Um, it, it goes on here to say, despite its appearance, the boundary in Kearson is far from clear. In pulling out, the Russians left thousands of soldiers and collaborators behind. So another lie by the BBC, because of course, uh, Kyrgyzstan was predominantly a Russian city. Uh, many of the people supported the Russians and uh, probably still many of them remain. David, you wanted to come in there. Well, before it got very dark and this talk about thousands of collaborators left behind, which starts to make the evacuation look like something else, I was just astonished that uh, BBC speak now has a mass evacuation uh, as is described as op optimistic busyness. I thought that was um, a, mem a memorable moment in the decline of the BBC. Uh, okay, thank you. Thank you for that. Well, let's just put the big man back on screen because um, uh, Yuroslav actually said in the BBC article what he really wants. He wants everyone to feel safer and he also wants every Russian collaborator to be punished. Uh, so I think we know what sort of man he is and what is it, what that's going to bring to Kearson. But of course, the BBC uh, will not be investigating that. But let's follow it through. This is Daily News. The Ministry of Economy told how many Ukrainians lost their jobs and went abroad because of the war. So more quotes from the Ukrainian officials themselves. Tediana Berezina uh, here saying the war is destroying Ukraine's labor market. Fighting continues where 10 million workers were employed. At least 5 million people lost their jobs. Hundreds of workers died in the fighting. And she goes on to say about 7 million people have already left Ukraine due to hostilities. This level of employment has increased significantly. Unemployment. Unemployment. Beg your pardon. Thank you, Mike. So we're clearly seeing the state of the country here being reported by its own officials. But what's interesting with this particular lady, the Deputy Ministry, Minister of Economy of Ukraine, is if we have a look at her little CV here, uh, we find something interesting. She's done an internship at the Parliament of Canada 
as a scholarship holder of the Canada-Ukraine parliamentary program. So is she working for Ukraine or is she working for the interests of the West and Canada? It's difficult to tell. Uh, but here's the real meat from uh, Ukraine Inform. Uh, war leaves 53% of Ukrainians unemployed. And note the date on that report. So the situation has declined. The BBC is not going to talk about the reality of this. And on top of the unemployment, Ukraine has now lost, some sources are saying, over 50% of its electrical power infrastructure. And recent Russian attacks have now targeted the uh, gas supplies. So the reality is Ukraine is now an empty shell. It doesn't function as an economy. And the West is controlling the war and the remains of that economy with soft loans. Uh, just to ram the point home here, here's the Deputy Minister, Minister of Economy of Ukraine. Um, what have we got? Held managerial positions in leading investment organisations, director of the Concord Capital Investment Company, uh, and this is part of Amstar International Direct Investment Fund, headquartered in the USA. So presumably he's in a great position uh, to help get uh, BlackRock and the banks simply chewing up what's left of Ukraine. BBC will not tell its viewers the truth. Okay, well, uh, Brian, just talking about the numbers of people leaving Ukraine at the moment, uh, let's have a short piece of video here uh, from Dublin. I'm a resident here. Yeah, okay. I want to know what's going on. What's your name? Something to do with me. I'm asking you a question though. What's going on here? Yeah, but this is an office block. This is an apartment or a hotel. But then it's okay for residents, is it? These are Ukrainians. No, but there's not one woman and child on this on this bus either. Not one woman and child. So a busload of Ukrainian men, uh, no women and children, according to that commentator, uh, all going into a government building in Dublin uh, to be accommodated. Now, I was just interested to have a look at uh, what the rules are for entry into Ireland from Ukraine. So let's have a look at this. This is from Citizens Information website uh, coming into Ireland from Ukraine. Uh, and it says uh, citizens of Ukraine do not need a visa to travel to Ireland. You also do not need proof that you have a COVID-19 vaccine and you do not need to take a COVID-19 test before you arrive. If you do not have a current passport, you can use other forms of identification to travel to Ireland, for example, national ID card, expired passport or birth certificate. The Irish government has asked airlines to accept these documents. Uh, when you arrive in Ireland, you should speak to an immigration officer at passport control. You may be brought to City West Convention Centre in Dublin. Uh, you can apply for temporary protection under the temporary protection directive uh, and you can apply for a PPS number which will allow you to apply for payments. If you arrive at Dublin Airport or Dublin Port the accommodation is not an accommodation is not immediately available you'll be offered support from non-government organizations. Now the point here is uh, David that of course once people are in Ireland they are effectively in the UK because of course uh, there is no border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland and there are no border checks uh, on any of the Northern Ireland ports or even on Dublin port. In fact, if you if you arrive into Dublin and then jump on a ferry at Dublin port to, to head over to Hollyhead, uh, it's not a problem at all. So, uh, you know, my question is, 
what are these young men being brought into Ireland for? Uh, are these refugees from the Ukrainian military? Are they? What are they? Or is this some kind of future uh, terrorist uh, being built here? I, I, I have no idea. But the whole, I, the whole principle of the initial evacuation from the Ukraine was women and children normally first, women and children only. And that's what we initially saw. There was lots of women and children housed all over the part of Scotland, I meant, all over the UK. Um, and the Ukrainians were not allowing any man of fighting age, up to about 60, to leave because they all had to be available to resist the Russians, uh, which, if your country's under attack, is understandable. So I, I'm at a loss to explain what's happening in Dublin, um, uh, Mike. I, I really, I'm very, I'm very surprised by that. Uh, well, David, if I may, I'm, I'm going to add, this is Peter Sutherland, in my opinion. This is uh, breaking down the nation state by using mass migration. So these young men, my opinion, are being used. But maybe we get another clue here if we go back to the BBC. This was a headline today, solve worker shortages with immigration. And this is the CBI boss. Uh, so the UK should use immigration to solve worker shortages and boost economic growth. The boss of the UK's biggest business group will say on Monday, Tony Danker will call on politicians to be practical about immigration at the CBI's conference in Birmingham. He'll also say that the UK should enable economic migration in areas where skilled workers cannot be found. Well, we've got no skilled workers because of course we've destroyed the education system to create those workers. And now we've got the perfect excuse to bring in more migration uh, in order to solve the problem. So another lie being told, uh, but what ultimately will these young men do? What will they be involved in? Um, we've got to wait and see, but it doesn't look promising, I think, for uh, stability in Ireland or the UK. Um, OK, yes, David. Yes, and no sign of anyone in the UK government or CBI calling for more investment to improve productivity uh, in the British workers. That doesn't seem to have occurred to them. No. Uh, well, let's stick with international uh, issues and Israel. Yes, over to Israel, and this is uh, news from the weekend. We have uh, a report from the Times of Israel here. Shameful Israelis assault troops and initiate clashes with Palestinians in Hebron. One soldier and two Palestinians injured by attacks in the West Bank during the annual pilgrimage. Military chief condemns shameful and disgraceful criminal behaviour. And uh, this, let's uh, remind everyone, is criminal behaviour by Israeli Jews uh, within Hebron. Um, the uh, Times of Israel continues Israelis' clash with Palestinians and security forces in the West Bank city, uh, leaving three people hurt. Uh, the clashes came when there were thousands of Jewish Israelis in, in for the weekend as part of an annual uh, pilgrimage uh, to the city. Um, according to Israeli Defence Forces, Jewish worshippers being escorted by the army to the tomb of Othniel ben Kenaz attacked Palestinians with stones, who responded with stone throwing in turn. Um, and uh, the uh, Times of Israel also continues, uh, the West Bank has been on edge in the past year. Uh, this spring, the IDF launched a major anti-terror offensive, mostly focused on the northern West Bank to deal with the seas of Palestinian attacks that have left 29 people in Israel and the West Bank dead since the start of the year. Hebron's in the southern part of the territory. This operation has netted more than 2,000 arrests in near nightly raids. 
but has also left 130 Palestinians dead. That figure's disputed, 146 is another figure I've seen. Many of them, but not all, while carrying out attacks or during clashes with security forces. Now, that sentence there is very sympathetic to the Israeli government. I think massively too much uh, sympathy towards the Israeli government position, and we'll be exploring that more in extra time as to what is actually happening on the ground uh, in the West Bank. Um, Times of Israel can... Uh, concludes at the same time there's been a noted rise in settler attacks against Palestinians and security forces. Now, I, I would make a point here that uh, I, I visit Israel on a fairly regular basis. I've, I've seen how uh, the Jewish tourists, mostly from America, interact with the IDF. Um, they will stop IDF young soldiers in the street to get selfies taken with them. The general tone is one of adulation and fandom. This is a long, long way from attacking them in the street. So the point I'm making here is that the, the mood within Israel and within the Jewish society is shifting. It's becoming very much more extreme, so much so that the IDF is becoming a target for the anger. And this is new. This is a, this is a, a very significant ground shifting within the, uh, the the culture of Israeli society and Jewish society uh, with respect to uh, this conflict. Uh, the Jerusalem Post here quotes Zippy Livni, former uh, Foreign Secretary, uh, uh, Israeli attacks against the IDF soldiers are likely to increase. She says, quote, those who accept settler violence against Palestinians will also get violence against IDF soldiers. And those who think what happens in Hebron stays in Hebron will get it everywhere in Israel. And I think she could be correct in that. Uh, she, the, the Jerusalem Post article continues. Um, the confrontation developed um, uh, uh, during a visit to the tomb during which Israeli citizens began to riot, throwing sharp objects and stones leading to Palestinians responding in kind. So you see, even the Jerusalem Post is identifying the Israeli uh, visitors to this town as the, the, the ones who are initiating the violence. Israeli security forces want to disperse the two sides and bring the scene back under control, at which point a member of the Israeli crowd attacked a soldier with a stick. Uh, the injured soldier received medical treatment at the scene before being evacuated further. So again, we're seeing here the anger is such that even the IDF if they are seen to be protecting the Palestinians, are now being subject to the violence themselves. Again, a very significant shift in the, 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 the culture within the, the Jewish community that's, that's propelling the violence in the West Bank. Um, the situation's worsening, the death toll's increasing, and there is no political initiative in sight at all to do anything about it. Okay, thanks for that. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, but you can pick something up in the shop, including perhaps a gift voucher for Christmas. Well, that would be a wonderful thing. It's very good uh, for the person receiving it. It's very good for the UK Column. So if you haven't, if you haven't bought one before, perhaps you might consider doing that. Uh, but please do share the material you find on the various platforms. And uh, David, uh, a couple of ads for some of your material.
Uh, yes, we have an interview here with Bob Murphy, Austrian economist, um, uh, to cover, well, many things about the Austrian School of Economics and the situation within the economy. Lots of interesting comments about inflation and its causes and exactly what the trajectory is there. Um, and uh, so I hope people will, will uh, catch up with that interview. Uh, also, we have an interview here with Professor Enos, who was one of the very first to stand up against against the COVID tyranny and has been there all the way along. Uh, so this was a bit of a, of a retrospective, a look back at the whole COVID crisis right up to the present day. A very interesting uh, interview with a, with, a, with a lovely man. And on the subject of lovely men, we have uh, an interview just up with uh, Brad Skistimus. This is five times August, uh, the man who's generated the, uh, the, the soundtrack to the resistance to COVID tyranny. And he's now taken all of his songs and put them into uh, an album, which is called Silent War. It's available on all the normal downloading websites. And also on his website, you can get a CD. The vinyl edition is sold out, as you see. So hopefully people will support Brad and uh, buy his music. Excellent. Well, let's, let's bring in Mark Anderson. Mark, thank you very much for joining us at this early hour for you. Um, U.S. Supreme Court, Where, what do we start off with here? Um, this past summer, when the Supreme Court of the United States overturned Roe v. Wade, there was talk of a leak prior to the official announcement of their decision. The way the Supreme Court works is typically in the fall of a given year, they'll argue a case, and some months later, the following spring or summer, they'll rule on a case. So there's a gap there in time. Now that gap needs to be shortened and we'll talk about that in a moment. But now in the wake of the overturning of Roe where they say there was this leak, again, prior to the actual announcement that they overturned Roe, now there's this article appearing that back in 2014, the same uh, Supreme Court justice that wrote the majority opinion for overturning Roe, Samuel Alito, uh, allegedly leaked a Supreme Court ruling at a dinner with two high-powered Ohio GOP donors that have given a lot of money to an evangelist, a Christian evangelist conservative, he says, named Rob Shank. And he was, he was born uh, in New Jersey to a Jewish family and said he converted to Christianity. At any rate, these two donors, suppose, they had dinner with the uh, Samuel Alito and his wife in 2014 prior to a major ruling at that time. And they said, this couple, these donors said they got advanced knowledge from Alito of how he was gonna rule on the uh, Hobby Lobby Burwell case. And that case had to do with uh, contraceptives. Hobby Lobby is a, a arts and crafts store and it's, a, it's run by conservative uh, uh, evangelicals, the family that owns the business and Hobby Lobby won the case and the court ruled that they did not have to cover contraceptive coverage in the insurance provided to Hobby Lobby employees. So that was seen as a uh, victory for the religious right as they're defined by the mass media. So again, supposedly uh, Mr. and Mrs. Alito at this dinner with these two donors, Mr. and Mrs. Wright from Ohio, leaked this decision ahead of time and then uh, the evangelist Rob Shank uh, then uh, supposedly benefited from this. And 
what all this boils down to uh, amid the complexities is that as we speak now, fast forwarding to today, the Senate Judiciary Committee citing the Roe overturning and citing this Hobby Lobby case from 2014, they're basically saying the Supreme Court has committed two unforgivable leaks ahead of time of major social issue decisions. And so now the Senate Judiciary Committee is coming down on the Supreme Court of the United States for so-called ethics violations. But regarding the 2014 Hobby Lobby case, uh, Justice Alito denies leaking in advance the Supreme Court's ruling on that contraceptive uh, coverage. And Mrs. Wright, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wright, who were the two donors that had dinner with the Alitos, and they supposedly received the leak, she also denied that Samuel Alito tipped her off on how the court would rule in 2014. So um, there's a lot of moving parts in this one, but it, it comes down to the liberal establishment and the media establishment doing anything they can by hook or crook to call to call into question the um, the validity and the legitimacy of the Supreme Court of the United States itself, because overturning Roe was such a huge blow to the liberal establishment after almost 50 years of having their um, death cult, their pro -abor their abortion industry in place under Roe v. Wade, and. The, the liberal establishment has suffered some serious losses under Alito and under the generally conservative Supreme Court in recent years, going back to 2014. So it, they're really just trying to impugn the uh, reputation of the court, especially of Justice Alito, and try and, look, try and make it look like the court is guilty of all these ethical breaches when the only time a actual leak evidently took place was right before the Roe decision but um, evidently there was not a leak, at least not a leak that Alito is aware of in the uh, Hobby Lobby decision. So uh, we're looking at something very disingenuous here, uh, an attack on the court by uh, the liberal establishment, which is beginning to lose the narrative. And uh, much more could be said on this, but um, there'll be more from me as the Senate Judiciary Committee delves into this and there'll be more revelations on what this is really about versus what we're told that it's about. Yeah, but this is- So that, that's probably sufficient on that topic for, for the moment. Okay, thank you for that, Mark. Uh, it, it's interesting to see the attack because, yeah, this is probably a sign of desperation, but uh, we, we've got uh, fundamental institutions being undermined effectively from within. Um, we're seeing this behavior in the States, we're seeing it in UK. But uh, what about the next segment here? Have we got somebody who's finally speaking out to tell us the truth about what's happening with wokeness and all that entails? Yeah, this is, this is some good news. We don't get enough of that, correct? Um, retired Lieutenant General, and here's my French, Michel Messinou. I think Michel is Michael in English, you know. He, he spoke November 9th at a big gathering of Canadian military officers. And according to the Ottawa Citizen, serving senior Canadian military officers gave a standing ovation November 9th to a speech by this retired Lieutenant General, Michel Messonneau, who criticized everything from the removal of historical statues and apologies to victims to government climate change policies. Where's this guy been hiding, right? And 
it, it goes on to say that uh, Lieutenant General Massenouf, uh, forgive my tortured French, uh, except he accepted a top defense award and he took a swipe at leaders who claimed, he claimed, divide society rather than unite it. And while he did not specifically name Prime Minister Justin Trudeau or Hillary Clinton, and this is the Ottawa citizen still, Massenouf said, can you imagine a military leader um, labeling half of his command as deplorables and fringe radicals and less thans and then expect them to fight as one. And uh, it goes on to say, conservative MPs, anti-vaxxers, right-wing commentators, and those who support protests, which, block, which blockaded border crossings and occupied downtown Ottawa early this year, have all railed at Trudeau uh, for his comments about demonstrators. And so basically, this Lieutenant General is uh, swiping back at the woke culture, and he found a good opportunity to do that. And the Canadian military establishment, those of the politically correct stripe, uh, were quite uncomfortable about this uh, in, a, in a very public way for this Lieutenant General to come out against this and say that uh, people like Justin Trudeau, who back in 2015 said Canada was the first post-national state, of taking a swipe at people of European extraction that helped comprise a large part of Canada from its very beginning. The general, if you boil it down, the general's basically saying, uh, with people like Trudeau in charge and others of that ilk, uh, the Canadian military uh, will have nothing worthy to fight for. And uh, so he's, he's really uh, coming out and saying that uh, this cancel culture and the whole politically correct thing is an affront to Canada and an affront to the Canadian military that needs, you know, a, a real identity or a real nation state to fight for. So um, he, uh, 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 and then the National Post um, had some interesting comments. John Robson, a, a commentator for the National Post, had a lot of interesting things to say. And, um, let me see, there, there's much could be said. Um, so Mark, the basically the response in this article um, shows that the military really picked up on what he said. I find this very encouraging that one, the man had the bravery to speak out and two, he got such a, a fantastically positive response from his military audience. This tells us, of course, that many people can see through this agenda what, what's Mike Pence got to uh, say with his so help me God? Is he actually doing something productive or the, or the opposite? Uh, well, Mike Pence, this is a very interesting case. He's going to be interviewed this coming Monday, uh, the 28th of November, by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs about his new book. And he, it says here, Vice President Mike Pence on America's role in the world. And that, now that's very notable. The, the main thing uh, he's going to be talking about is his role in uh, upholding the results of the 2020 election and his supposed resistance against those Republicans in Congress and Trump for wanting an election recount and claiming that the election had been stolen. But the thing to watch beyond him defending his role in that regard is what's going to become a Mike Pence. And 
him speaking to the Chicago Council, which of course is the former Chicago CFR, is indicative of a major change, uh, a potential one for Mike Pence. Is he only going to talk about um, his role in supposedly upholding those legitimate election results from 2020? Or is he going to get more into his newfound view on globalism? And this happened, as you're showing, to Mad Dog Mattis, Jim Mattis, uh, a couple of years ago. He used to be a Trump Secretary of Defense for two years, and he took a 180 about turn and completely repudiated everything that Trump stood for. And the next thing you know, Mattis was speaking to the uh, New York Council on Foreign Relations and to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs with a new book, just like Pence is. And as I wrote here in one of my Truth Hound articles at the time, Mad Dog Mattis sold his soul to globalism. And uh, not only did he turn his back on Trump, he turned his back on America first. He turned his back on American sovereignty. He wrote an article for the CFR journal, Foreign Affairs, and he went in both feet uh, with the globalist crowd. And he was the first speaker, notably, at the uh, Lester Crown Foreign Policy Speaking Series at the Chicago Council. And so the question is, is will Mike Pence go the same way? Will he go beyond his, his story? Uh, forgive that, that that's a uh, Amber Alert thing. Uh, will he go beyond his his claims or his his part in the 2020 election, and will he follow the path of Mattis and uh, adopt a more globalist foreign policy, uh, be a born again globalist, you might say, rather than a born again Christian as he claims to be? So all eyes are on Pence and whether he'll follow the Mattis route and join the globalist crowd and pretty much leave conservatism altogether, uh, uh, traditional conservatism. We'll see what happens a week from today on that one. So that's an interesting trend to watch. Okay, well, thank you very much for that report. Um, okay, now, uh, yesterday, Steve Barkley was uh, on with Laura Koonsberg on the BBC, and uh, she asked him about the situation with respect to any admissions to the National Health Service. Uh, just have a listen to a short excerpt from this. You use the word challenge a lot. I want to show our viewers what challenge really means. We can look at this graph. You might want to look at it as well. The number of patients who have to wait over 12 hours before getting onto a ward when they arrive at any. Look at that spike. And in a way, Laura, That's that a makes- a challenge. That's a disaster, That makes my it? exact point. You can see the extent to which that has risen uh, exponentially since the pandemic. So the point is, the point I was making was in terms of where from the Labour Party here, this being a 12-year issue, you can see there's been a very material impact from the pandemic. And it's in that context that we've taken the difficult decision on social care, whilst we remain committed to those reforms, to delay them for two years, which frees up the £6.6 .6 billion pound investment into our NHS, but also the 2.8 and 4.7 billion but can that you, goes into But care. can you look at that as Health Secretary and tell our viewers this morning that this system is working. Well, that's why we're put. We're the very you, difficult. My can you tell people that well, the NHS the is working? It is right under, now? I recognise, Laura, that it is under severe pressure. Uh, and that rough. So, NHS under severe pressure, but Brian, it's because of the pandemic. It's got nothing whatever to do with government policy. Well, or, <laughs> sorry, Mike. It's everything to do with government policy because yeah. it's the government policy which has destroyed the NHS from, from within. Um, she's talking how many hours? 15 hours, did she talk about yeah. A&E? Uh, two 
Okay, anecdotal stories, but I know they're, they're true of people who were in A&E, um, uh, not last weekend, the weekend before, uh, one family were there for 32 hours. Uh, the other was a lady with her elderly father. They'd already been there for 54 hours without proper admission into the hospital. This is complete breakdown. Indeed. So let's just bring the latest all-cause mortality statistics from last week. Uh, and uh, we need to look at the right-hand side again. Uh, and once again, we have another week uh, gone past with uh, significant uh, excess mortality above the five-year average. Uh, and nobody really commenting on it. Well, uh, the Telegraph was commenting on it, uh, uh, let's see, yesterday. Um, and this is the headline, true impact of COVID on cancer patients revealed as excess deaths soar. So the Telegraph attempting to suggest that it's cancer. The question is, is it cancer? Now at the bottom of that uh, screenshot there, you can see there's a link, uh, which they uh, have linked to something that they describe as the numbers dying from cancer. Well, in fact, they link to another Telegraph article. They don't link to any actual data. So let's look at some data and look at uh, excess mortality in England caused by death in this case, uh, cancer. Uh, and as, if we look on the right-hand side at the relevant period there, similar to, to the previous graph, uh, we find that actually cancer isn't really causing too much in terms of excess mortality. Brian, it's pretty much on the five-year average line. Uh, and so cancer isn't the reason for it. On the other hand, uh, if we look at, uh, well, what's this? Uh, what's this uh, ischemic heart disease? Well, that's producing some fairly significant excess mortality. Uh, and what's this one? Heart failure. That's also producing some fairly significant excess mortality. So what is the cause of this? Nobody seems to really want to grip it or ask the relevant questions. Uh, and I just want to finally make the point, this isn't just a UK problem, uh, because uh, just one example here, can we? what can explain the excess mortality in US and Europe in 2022 from health feedback here? And again, another sort of mainstream organization not prepared to actually ask the relevant questions because they're not prepared to do any more than saying, well, we don't really know what's causing this. Um, well, they don't want to go near this. And of course, we've got to come back to the MHRA, which is simply saying, oh, well, there is a bit of a problem now, but uh, the deaths are skewing the figures so we can't investigate it. This is, this is a, a cover up on a a vast scale, national yeah, scale. Indeed. And I just wanted to include this one for you, David. Uh, NHS chiefs in Scotland discuss having wealthy pay for treatment. Uh, and uh, this is uh, the BBC claiming an exclusive on this. They're saying they've seen internal minutes, uh, which shows that the NHS and the Scottish government were actually t discussing the possibility of having a two-tier NHS system where people that are wealthier are required to pay for their treatment, whereas the poor get it, continue to get it for, for free. Uh, Hamza Yusuf, uh, tweeting out this morning, uh, SNP-led ScotGov has never contemplated charging anyone regardless of wealth for treatment on the NHS and never will. So, I mean, I don't know. I know this is kind of hijacking you a little bit here. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, Scottish Government is the least transparent uh, organisation uh, outside of North Korea. And uh, whether this is true with uh, dear Hamza remains to be seen. If that turns out to be false, uh, unfortunately, he will not resign. Well, indeed. OK, let's uh, have a look at this then. Exclusive women's ordeal at uh, Fernethy House revealed in latest abuse allegations. Now, you've uh, covered Fernethy House before. Just very briefly, give us a reminder of what this is about. Yeah, Fernethy House was a, a, a 
a, a home owned by uh, then the Glasgow Corporation, and they used it for um, short-term uh, breaks for uh, schoolgirls from Glasgow to go to the Angus Glens for a holiday for around four to six weeks. Um, and in that, there was a great deal of abuse happening in this facility. There are 200 women who are now campaigning that, for information of what actually happened and for this, uh, this situation to be appropriately addressed and for essentially full openness and disclosure is what their, what their main demand is. And this has been ably supported by, uh, by the Courier newspaper in Dundee, who've done some fine journalism, and we're going to cover some of that uh, here uh, just now. Uh, this article here in the Courier um, uh, uh, reports uh, um, uh, Shan Cruden, uh, her, her ordeal. Uh, she says, I woke up uh, and my five-year-old sister was getting dragged out of bed. She had wet the bed and was being put out in the hallway all night. I got up from my bed to check she was all right and got battered and told not to move. She also remembers the girls being forced to write letters home to tell the families they were having a great time. Uh, she said, my, my letter home got torn up in my face because I was supposed to copy what was written on the blackboard. I kept hoping I would get something out. And she added, it comes back in my mind a lot, especially with my own kids. I've not allowed them to go certain places because I worry. I feel terribly guilty about how I brought them up because they missed out on a lot. I'm just an angry person, and it all stems from Forneti House. Um, now, uh, we've been doing some research on this, and um, we've discovered uh, this information. The Corporation of Glasgow reports, and these go back to the first one that mentions Forneti's 1961. This is the School Health Service Report, Medical Inspection and Treatment of School Children. And here you see the residential schools listed, and it's not just Forneti. Uh, Forneti is listed here under convalescent, uh, 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 residential schools, but there's the normal, quote, normal ones, Achnamara, Loch Gilpid, Dalgais, Deer Dunkeld, uh, 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 Galloway in Wigtonshire. Uh, we've also got uh, Askog, that's on Butte, Dunoon, Kilmarnock, Bears Den, Maybole, um, Ardrossan, uh, as well as Fornethy. And you see how they're, they're, sub, they're, they're uh, differentiated between Protestants and Roman Catholics, between girls and boys in some cases including a nursery here at South Anne and Fairley, that's in Largs. So what I would say here is, if people can freeze the screen, if, if you have experience of any of these homes, please write to us, it's david at ukcolumn.org, and tell us what you experienced in these homes. Because for Nethi, we know those 200 women already come forward to say they had a, they, they experienced abuse. The, the home took 74 girls at a time, operating all year on a six-week, roughly, turnaround over decades. There's something like 20,000 uh, girls went through this home. So there, there's going to be more stories and more, more abuse and more people suffering out there. Um, and we've got another similar report here from the Corporation of Glasgow. This one's from 1972. And again, if you can freeze the screen and look at all of the different homes that are listed, and there's Denise called Bride, Lumsden, May Ball and Ayrshire. Uh, we've got um, many in the Clyde Coast. Uh, so anyone watching, if you've experienced of any of these homes, please let us know what you've experienced. And I'll just finish on this subject with, uh, a call to look. We've got a, a link to this on our website at present. This is the main uh, courier website detailing the abuse 
suffered by the women and the investigation into the abuse suffered by the women at Forneti. It's called Abuse of Children While on Holiday in Angus. Now these women want justice by uh, Brendan Duggan. It's an excellent, long, detailed report with lots of video, lots of content. We have a link to it on the website and I encourage people to, to seek that out as well. Okay, now let's move on to an event that's taking place on the 19th of November called Education, Not Indoctrination. Yes, yeah, so this, this was over the weekend, this was on Saturday, and you see here it's advertised uh, we urgently need parents and communities to be involved in the public debate on Scottish education. Amen to that. And it was advertised as taking place in Civic House in Glasgow. Uh, but that's not actually what happened. If you see here, we've got uh, uh, Frank Ferretti, famous author and, 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 and significant uh, uh, leader in, in, in thought in the field of education. Uh, he, was, he was a main speaker at the event. Uh, he, he writes, this was an important event. Uh, the previous venue cancelled, uh, but the folks at the Tron Church stepped up and gave us a venue to hold this discussion. So it was the very last minute they were cancelled. They suffered what we term cancel culture. Um, but uh, thanks to the Tron Church, the fine people there, uh, it went ahead. Uh, we've got the Times reporting the cancellation here. Glasgow venue Civic House cancels booking for education, not indoctrination conference, uh, writes Mark Holm in the Times. So Civic House doesn't want anyone to discuss uh, education, not indoctrination. That seems to be off the agenda for some reason. Uh, the Times continues, the conference which aimed to highlight opposition to cancel, cancel culture has itself been cancelled after venue staff refused to work at the event. Speakers at Education, Not Indoctrination plan to claim that woke ideology is taking over schools and universities at the event in Civic House in Glasgow. It was forced to move to a new venue after the original host claimed that the topics they planned to discuss were offensive to LGBTQ staff members. Uh, Stuart Wayton, an academic at Abertay University, uh, claimed the cancellation served only to highlight the need for the conference. He said, quote, cancel culture is now firmly taking root in Glasgow. Uh, I've experienced it, he's absolutely right. The whole point of this conference is to have a discussion about some of the dogmatic and ideological developments in schools, developments that clash with the idea of an open liberal education for all. This attempt to cancel the event is illustrated of the dangerous and deeply intolerant times we live in, where any discussion or disagreement about issues like race and gender are silenced. Um, in an email to the conference organisers, Agile City, which operates Civic House, said, uh, the content of the event has been highlighted to us via online marketing and further, through further research to be in opposition to the values held by our team. So the values weren't good enough. As such, the staff uh, who were booked to manage the event are not willing to work. Um, uh, so there we go. They were caught. Now, we, I had a little look into who specifically might have cancelled this. Uh, the most obvious person I could come up with, and apologies to this lady if she was not involved, Katie O'Grady. Uh, she's a community programme coordinator and head of front of house at uh, Agile City. Um, and um, her background, uh, we see here from the Scottish Contemporary Art Network, is uh, she's a creative producer living in Glasgow, recently finished her master's at uh, Glasgow University in curatorial practice. Um, and her practice is concerned with ideas of how we perceive create and contribute to our worlds. 
uh, unless, of course, you want to talk about indoctrination of children, in which case you're not allowed to speak. Uh, and her, her work draws from the occult and ecological thought. So that gives you an idea of where she might be in terms of her political and uh, spiritual worldview. Uh, now, we're very fortunate to be, to be joined uh, uh, um, uh, today um, uh, by Richard Lucas, who was a speaker at the event, to, to give us a little bit of an idea of what was actually discussed. It will be online in a few weeks, but uh, we'd like to know a little bit more about it. The feedback Richard I've got is it was a positive event and full of, full of people who are active and well-informed and uh, keen to, keen to uh, work in, a, in an energised fashion. Is that what you found? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. It was a, a good group of people from all sorts of backgrounds coming together with, with particular concerns about different aspects of the indoctrination going on in Scottish schools, but united in the view that it's just got to stop. Schools are not supposed to be political activism training camps but that is what they're being turned into under the Scottish government. So there's the usual sex education, transgender, but also the critical race theory, and also the, the promotion of a sort of globalist worldview as well, through a formal assessment system with the OECD that the Scottish government has signed up to. They talked about the this sort of obsession with well-being and trying to teach children that they're vulnerable and need to be dependent on adults, particularly dependent on agents of the state as well in order to, to get through their day at primary school. So there's all different aspects. And just the fact that the event was happening is really encouraging. I think parents, teachers, and pupils as well in Scotland are starting to wake up to what's going on in schools. Yes, thanks very much for that, Richard. Uh, Richard uh, will, and Stuart Wayton and many others will be joining us on the 15th of December for a UK column special on uh, education, not indoctrination. So we'll have more details for everyone about that shortly. Uh, just before we leave you, Richard, um, uh, next steps in terms of what came out of this conference? Are there, are there next steps that have been identified and things that are things that are happening immediately? I heard something about the formation of a of a of a union, a kind of collectivist organisation to allow people to uh, to resist this and not be alone and not be isolated. Uh, that's absolutely right. The Scottish Union for Education is its very early stages, but it is going to be launched as an official organisation. It won't be uh, the sort of union you join to get a lawyer. You know, if something goes wrong at work, not that sort of union, but a union where you can bring these problems and discuss these problems and to pass on the issues. A lot of teachers in particular are very worried to speak openly about their concerns about the education system because they fear for their career. So the Scottish Union for Education can represent these views, be a forum, be a, be a medium for communicating these views to the wider public and to the government. So, yeah, I think it's a very exciting development. I would look forward to, to seeing it flourish in the future. Uh, Richard, thank you very much for that. I look forward to talking to you more. And uh, Richard has got a, an interview with us coming up in, in the following weeks as well. It's been worked on at the moment. Uh, until then, uh, Richard, thank you very much. Well, David, I'd say very good to see people really standing up to be counted. But of course, the agenda that's coming through promoted by the media, uh, BBC uh, fully involved with this. I've taken just a little segment out of BBC Media Action here because I've discovered that they've got a major campaign running on uh, equity, diversity and inclusion. Um, I will do more on this, but this is the document that I discovered from earlier this year. 
Um, they are going to change the world. Uh, let's not beat around the bush. Media action is going to make all people equal. It's going to give um, promotion to minorities. Uh, it is going to create the most beautiful world. And this is all going to be done in line with sustainable development goals. So what we're actually seeing is the UN agenda coming in through the BBC. And uh, this is in particular, of course, going to target young people and it's going to target vulnerable people. We will do more to reveal what uh, BBC media is really up to with, of course, its government funding. But uh, let's stay on the propaganda trail with the BBC. And a few days ago, we had this man on screen, Yuri Sack. Uh, uh, he was commenting on what was about to happen with Kyrgyzstan City. We're almost fully in control. And he was labelled by the BBC as an advisor to the Ukraine Defence Ministry. Well, I'm going to say we're pretty sure that this is the man, partner and director of special projects at CFC Big Ideas. And uh, note on the right that he's not only working with the Ministry of Defence of Ukraine, but he's also ex-University of Oxford. Um, so here's a little bit of the timeline. 16 years with CFC uh, Big Ideas and then a seamless, seamless move across to advise the Ministry of Defence in Ukraine. Um, but uh, what's his um, education background? Well, the University of Oxford, he's also been with the Ukrainian Institute of International Affairs, Kiev State Institute of Theatrical Art, always useful, and the University of Wolverhampton. So this is a very internationalist agenda. But if we have a look at CFC, uh, we're an international communications consultancy headquartered in Dubai, UAE, and Kiev, Ukraine, established in 2002. The company has made its name by implementing big idea international projects. So uh, these are all good people. And then we come to an interesting uh, connection, which is through to the US Agency for Global Media. And um, it uh, now becomes very obvious that what we're actually seeing is uh, controlled media helping to run the agenda in Ukraine to the West's entire satisfaction. And this is the US Agency for Global Media and of course, its history is uh, effectively wartime propaganda from the United States and the Western allies at that time. Uh, that has now been transformed across. Uh, so the propaganda machine is going to protect US interests worldwide, and that includes Ukraine. So um, we shouldn't be surprised at where this has led us, because of course, Ukraine is going to continue to fight for the West. We control the budget, we control the economy, we control in principle the fighting forces, and we certainly control the media. Um, but a really excellent article here from the American conservative, blame the deep state for the carnage in Ukraine. And that sums it up nicely. But my key point is that, of course, uh, the constant change we're seeing in UK and elsewhere is coming about through these uh, pernicious woke agendas and the propaganda through organizations such as the BBC. But of course, we can see the Americans here also involved in it. Okay, let's move on to financial matters very briefly. And I just wanted to highlight this article <coughs> in the Financial Times, uh, Let Crypto Burn. Uh, and this, of course, is a comment which is falling out from the FTX collapse. Uh, and uh, so anyway, let crypto burn. Let's see what they're saying here. Uh, finance is all about trust. 
Uh, the loss of trust from surging failures already is bringing about crypto's demise. The market capitalization of the Myriad coins is down by about 40, uh, 75% from its November 2021 peak. And uh, so uh, really, it, it's, it's the, I, I'm not a, a fan of cryptocurrencies as such, but uh, it is the, the off the scale hypocrisy in this article that I really wanted to highlight here. So let's move on with it. Uh, it's hard to imagine trust in crypto recovering from the scale and cope of FTX's failures. Until very recently, FTX was a leading exchange and was widely touted as a guiding light in an industry rife with charlatans. However, FTX intentionally chose to locate in a jurisdiction beyond uh, the legal and regulatory purview of those na uh, nations with the largest financial systems. So just first of all, the uh, claim that uh, you know FTX was somehow a charlatan organization compared to uh, the mainstream banking system. Uh, I mean, this is ridiculous, and particularly if you were watching Friday's program and saw the links between the uh, the FTX chief executive and his girlfriend and the Securities and Exchange Commission. But dealing with the idea of locating to a jurisdiction beyond the legal and regulatory uh, purview of uh, the, the regulators, uh, isn't that what the Cayman Islands is all about? Uh, this is exactly what the uh, mainstream financial system does when they don't want to be regulated by the Financial Services Authority or the SEC. Uh, and then the article goes on. Moreover, reports now reveal that FTX lacked transparency, misused customer funds, engaged in related party dealings and had weak corporate governance and accepted phantom collateral along with other unsafe practices. Well, let's just very briefly look at the biggest money laundering scandals, just to take one thing, HSBC, Wachovia Bank, uh, Standard Chartered Bank, Danske Bank, uh, Commerce Bank, Westpac, Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, it, it, BCCI, it goes on. Uh, the, the hypocrisy off the scale here. And often find amounts which appear large to the public, but to the banks themselves are really minor amounts of money. Yes. And then finally, so the big question is whether the authorities ought to create uh, a new regulatory and supervisory framework that protects property rights and enforces principles of safety and soundness. Concerned about further losses from the collapse of crypto, many are calling for new rules to protect consumers. And David, assuming you're not laughing uh, your socks off at this point, I just thought uh, I'd run through, uh, you know, were there any new rules uh, in place after the uh, 1637 banking collapse, 1797, 1837, 1857, 1884, 1901, um, against uh, losing the money that, that, that fraud tends to end up with losses uh, and make, to make sure they're bailed out by the taxpayer and uh, to prevent any sort of transparency or honesty or recompense to the public. The rules are not our friend. The rules protect the criminals. Something that was made in one of the articles on the FTX that we linked to, a follow-up article is on, it's got a link on our webpage at the moment, called FTX worse than Enron, and that's the assessment of the person who's dealing with the liquidation. Who was the liquidator for Enron? And he says this is the worst he's ever seen in terms of corporate mismanagement. Uh, so it's, it, it is a terrible situation, but the rules, the rules will not help us. No, indeed. Um, okay, let's uh, move back to the United States, David. And uh, well, an older story, but with some recent developments. 
Yes, and and one that really talks to a lot of the problems in the society that we've been we've been covering today. So this is the Army Times United States uh, from October two thousand and one, a year ago, just no, over a year 2021, ago. Twenty twenty one. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, beg your pardon. 2021, beg your pardon, a year ago. Uh, she, quote, she was just doing her job. Um, a homeless vet loses a service dog during arrest for panhandling. So this is uh, Joshua Rohr. Um, so he was in a town called uh, Gastonia sh and, and shopping centre with, with his dog Sunshine. Sunshine Ray is the name of the dog. Uh, on October the 13th, uh, when a 9-11 caller contacted the police. Now, Rohr wasn't bothering anyone. But the caller said that having the dog with him was his way of using sympathy to get money. Um, so even though Roar wasn't armed and he wasn't harassing passers-by, uh, according to witnesses of the scene, the, the encounter would ultimately end with his arrest and Sunshine's death. So here we see a picture of Sunshine, Sunshine Ray, the dog. Um, now, uh, Roar was deployed to Kuwait and Iraq. Um, and with, uh, he was with the Kentucky National Guard. He suffers from service-connected post-traumatic stress disorder, and his two-year-old Belgian Manal, uh, 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 Malono, uh, called Sunshine, was his veteran affairs-prescribed treatment, according to an official letter from the VA uh, provided to Military Times by Rohr. Uh, he said he wasn't doing anything illegal. I was just standing there waving at people. This lady waved me over and offered me money. This apparently used to happen quite a lot because the local community knew him and took care of him. He was living in the woods, camping in the woods, uh, and the local community would help him out um, with food and with uh, money. He said, I was accused of, uh, falsely of using my dog to get money from people and asking people for money, but that's not true. Um, so the police drove up aggressively with the lights on. He said to the dog, she was just doing her job licking me, trying to calm me down. The cops started yelling at her and me, telling me to get to get her to settle down. But they wouldn't allow me to physically get control of her. He was pinned against the bonnet of the car at this point. Um, he was taken away for uh, booking, and he begged officers to let Sunshine come with him, uh, citing a statute that says she should do this. He said they laughed at me. I begged them to bring her with me or to give her to an officer to take uh, them, uh, to take with them, but they wouldn't listen. They didn't care. Roar never saw Sunshine again. Uh, his, his, his friend did, did manage to catch the dog. They tasered the dog. Um, the friend did manage to catch the dog, but she later slipped her leash. When he was released from prison, he spent two days looking for her, but she'd been hit by a car and killed. Um, the Army Times reports that losing Sunshine uh, was devastating uh, to Roar. He just wanted to die. He said, I lost my ability to believe in and function in society. Uh, I cannot function without a service dog. And they stole that from me. I don't know how I'm going to recover from, from this. I begged them not to separate us. They didn't care about me or her or the fact that I needed her. Now, we do have video, and I have to warn uh, viewers and listeners, this is quite difficult to watch. Some people might find it upsetting. I confess I did. Uh, but nonetheless, it brings out very important points about how we're treated by those who are there to allegedly protect us and the, uh, the callousness that uh, anyone who's vulnerable is likely to receive from the state. I, I just saw you take money from that car. Yeah, you saw me take money, but you didn't see me ask. All right, let me get your ID, okay? 
You can't ask for my ID if yes, I can. giving me money. Okay, get your dog, okay? Yes, I can. It's called panhandling. But it's not panhandling if I didn't ask for it, is it? ID. You can give me your ID or you can go to jail for RDO. Which one you want to do? What's the ID for that? Because I'm about to write you a citation. For what? For panhandling. That's not panhandling. Yes, it is. No, it's not. If you come up to me and give me money... You walked out to the car. Because they stopped. Did you see them okay. stop? Give me your you ID. You saw the whole situation. Give me your ID or you're going to jail for RDO, which is resist, delay, obstruct. Okay. You're going to write a disabled veteran that's living in the woods a ticket. Yes, because I asked you not to do it, and you I did. I didn't do it. You and see I sit me. There and I come watch here. You. I'm packing my stuff up. I sit there and watch you. You watch me walk up the sidewalk. You're back in Third City. I'm out with that, that subject. Send like, you literally walk. watch me walk up the sidewalk. Okay, give you me your ID, sir. Stop. Give me your ID. You're going to write me a ticket. Yes. Yes. I didn't commit a crime. You, you violate a city no, ordinance. No, I didn't. There's no city ordinance that says somebody can't give me money. I and you obstructed traffic. No, I didn't. They okay. did. They did. They obstructed traffic. Give me your ID. the one in the car. Give me your ID, sir. I'm not giving you my ID because I didn't break the phone. I'm not doing it. Therefore, he requested a sergeant. I'm doing well, just saw with him. I told him he couldn't be on the median. Yeah, and, and I just saw him walk out to a car to get money. Yeah, I right saw here. him at the Circle K the other day uh, with a car. Yeah. Yeah. So I now mean, he's refusing to give me his ID because I'm going to write him for violating the city she's ordinance. She's trying to write me a ticket because I was walking up this, packing no. up. She told me to pack up. I told you I Listen, and somebody stopped listen, and gave I told me you money. Not and you saw it yesterday. He saw it too. People you, give me money without me okay. asking. I don't have because, to ask. Because, because you're, first of all, I mean, it, it, it can be inferred, okay? Because that's the way the law works. Right. Things can be inferred. So if it appears that you're violating the ordinance, but, that's how that works. Right, but if... So, there you go. No, we, your state ID, not your VA this ID. This isn't valid. It's not valid. I, I need your state ID, not your VA ID. I'm going to ask you one more time. It's not book. even valid. Give me it's your state ID. Oh, turn around. Hey, dude, no, no, dude. Turn around. Are you kidding turn around. me? Turn around. Do you don't see this? Somebody help me. Hey, what are you doing? Stop. What are you doing? Mama. Hey. What are you doing? Call your dog off. 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 Sir, call your dog off. Call your dog off. He just bit me. He bit me. Call your dog off. To Charlie. Call your dog off. Call your dog off. Call your dog off. Call your dog off. We need, we need. To Charlie Ten City, we need more units. We need more units. Stop. What are you doing? Somebody help me. Record. Turn around. Record. Turn around, sir. Help me! Turn, sir, turn around. No. Turn away. Why are you doing this? Why are you no, doing no, take that. Charlie's tail was bit by the dog. It bit my foot, and I knew it was going to bite you, sir. Charlie's tail was bit by the dog. Help me! What are you doing? Negative. Relax and give me your hand. Why are you doing this? I haven't done anything. Who cooperating? His dog bit him. Somebody help me record this. 
medical device where's my dog where's my dog where's my dog where's my dog and uh yes um so that's how they treated him and um the the callousness on display there the the indifference to suffering the response to vulnerability with just more aggression um the abuse of the animal the abuse of of someone who's obviously uh, in a very bad place and um and uh, is personally struggling was just horrendous and uh, we've got here the charlotteville observer they're talking about what happened to the officers um brooks the officer who tased the dog uh, he received um, sorry, no, Brooks was a female officer, I beg your pardon. She received a three-day disciplinary suspension without pay. And Taylor, the officer who tased the dog, resigned in February. I suspect that his his time in that community was over because any time he went out, he was hearing the phrase Sunshine Ray because anyone seeing that video simply wouldn't allow him to police them anymore. I think he probably had to resign for that reason. Uh, Brooks had posted on Facebook that Rose Backer sounded dumb as hell, according to the Gazette, although the department refused to say why she was suspended. Rose panhandling and resisting arrest charges were dismissed. The Gazette reported, although he was sentenced to two years supervised probation after pleading guilty to an unrelated charge of driving without a license. Uh, an update on this uh, from November 10th this year, um, uh, and uh, a much more positive, upbeat um, termination to it. Here you see uh, Joshua and his, and his new dog, and he's campaigning for justice for sunshine. Uh, also, he's campaigning and successfully for starting a veterans treatment court. So the Gaston County will sue on a vet veterans treatment court to help veterans in criminal trouble. Roar said in an interview, um, uh, that uh, he had a chance to see this in action. He liked what he saw. Quote, I observed the court once last year when they told me about it. And uh, like I said, it was all veterans. The judge was a veteran. The DA was a veteran. The prosecutor was a veteran. It's the, I've never seen anything like it. When you get up there, they clap for you and they cheer you on. <clears throat> and the judge is down on your level and he's um, not like up on the podium. You're all on the same level. You're all on the floor together. It's not as intimidating as a regular courtroom because they're there to help you. And if anyone wants to help uh, 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 Joshua, there is a GoFundMe site uh, for Joshua and uh, the fight for some justice for his, uh, for his dog, Sunshine Ray. It's doing very well. They've raised $45,000 so far uh, of a $50,000 target. But if anyone's out there wishes to uh, assist him, uh, I'm sure that... Um, between housing costs and food and all the rest of it, there'll be plenty of uh, good uses for the money and indeed legal costs. Uh, so GoFundMe page, Justice for Homeless Vet Joshua and Sunshine Ray is available if you wish to assist. Uh, David, a tragic story, and I can tell by the responses in our chat box that that's affected many people. Um, when you talked to me about the, this particular incident, I felt it was indicative of a breakdown 
um, in the United States, um, particularly for a country that stands on the world stage and, and lectures uh, people on how democratic and freedom loving they are. Uh, Mark, very quickly, because we're right at the end of the news, I think it's appropriate just to let you respond as an American guest with us today. But it's pretty appalling that this sort of stuff has started to go on in the West. Yeah, this, this is illustrative of a, of a huge uh, intellectual uh, bungle on the part of Americans, especially conservatives. They say, support your local police. That's the conservative proper thing to do. And support your soldiers. That's the right thing to do. But the history, especially recent history in the US, is rife with stories of police abusing veterans. It's a strange situation. It's almost paradoxical. But one of the big problems with America, and this is also illustrative of it uh, in, a, in a sort of indirect way, is that we put so much of our national pride into the military. We really don't have an agreement on what our constitution means anymore. We have all this multiculturalism. There's no real focal point. Uh, Christianity is no longer the dominant force it used to be in terms of the ethic and moral direction of the country. We put it all in for the military in the US. So, you know, we support our troops no matter what, no matter how illegitimate the globalist mission is that we send the troops on. And yet when those troops get home from these untenable and unwinnable wars, over 20 years in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history, these troops get home and they get treated like this uh, from this freedom-loving, military-loving country. And so it, it just shows you that supporting the police uh, unconditionally is a very wrong-headed thing to do. Uh, a, a columnist friend of mine, William Norman Gregg, wrote about that in, in extreme detail. He's a, a late writer. He passed away a few years ago. He exposed the underbelly of many police agencies acting unconstitutionally and in a way that no soldier would want to go overseas to defend. And this is somewhat what the lieutenant general from the Canadian military that I talked about earlier was complaining about. Canada is getting to be is getting to the point where there's no nation to defend. Yeah. yeah. And so this kind of breakdown is intolerable. And we can only hope this soldier gets the help he needs because his case is illustrative of this huge problem that I'm only scratching the surface on. OK, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, we just end on this one that I, I, I came across shortly after I'd watched the video about the dog. But this is this is in Plymouth. And what's the headline? Delivery driver who dropped cigarette butt on the floor, slapped with hefty fine. Uh, apparently a Plymouth fast food delivery man has been fined more than £1,400 for dropping a cigarette butt on the street. Uh, Mohammed Barmi, 31 of Chandlewood Avenue, was caught by a, quote, environmental protection, uh, sorry, environmental enforcement officer. Um, and... OK, the man initially tried to sort of deny that it was him and he tried to get away without being identified, but he was identified via the vehicle. And uh, ultimately, he was fined £1,400 for that cigarette. But what I found so very sad was uh, there was comment in the article from this councillor who'd said there's absolutely no excuse for littering in Plymouth. And I'm pleased. I'm pleased that the magistrates have handed out such a hefty fine for the offence. Let this be a message to the very small minority who think it's okay to litter. If you are caught, you will be punished. And what I find so very sad about that comment was, I think I'm right in saying that that 
particular councillor worked very hard for UKIP to stand up against what certainly many people saw at the time, quite rightly, was a dictatorship coming into force. And yet here in Plymouth, nobody has been hurt, but we're going to find somebody £1,400 for a cigarette butt. I think this is also indicative of the type of society that's uh, taking over the UK. Yeah, and particularly hypocritical again, because of course, uh, most of the litter in Plymouth is related to shoddy bin collections, but that's a whole other <laughs> issue. issue. Yeah. Uh, David, we'll end on this then. Um, from uh, the G20, we've got uh, Bob Bob Moran, Bob's cartoons again, uh, summarising things. And we've got uh, the title here is crushing it. And we've got uh, Xi Jinping. We've got uh, we've got um, uh, Bill Gates, Justin Trudeau, Klaus Schwab, uh, child sniffing Joe Biden, and diminutive Rishi. And what they're crushing? Well, they're crushing freedom. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. We, we'll end there. David and uh, Mark, thank you very much. And a big thank you to our guests for joining us. We will be back shortly for extra time. And as always, a huge thank you to all of our viewers and supporters, because the UK column is only possible uh, with your help. So thank you very much. And uh, we are looking forward to some exciting news in the next couple of months. See we'll leave it there. Thank you. Bye bye.